0: Welcome to Slacker Motor Radio with Brad Nass. Based out of the Pacific Northwest, we're talking motorcycles and the motorcycle community. and We're excited to have this hour with you. Here we go. Welcome back, Slackers. Brad, how are you? I
1: am doing good as usual. Uh, just enjoying another beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest. A Little chilly outside, but can't complain otherwise. How about you, Addison? How you doing?
0: A little chilly. That's true. Uh, chilly and getting chillier. Now it's hard to complain. I agree because you know I, I follow and talk to enough people outside of our area that we've got. You know, I'm seeing posts and and people talking about the fact that you know in the northern states minnesota wisconsin uh up in canada right it's you know 40 below zero so when we're hitting 20 25 and we're all whining around here you kind of put that into perspective it's really not that bad but it is going to get cold specifically for our area my concern with that is it's going to rain right before it snows hopefully the roads are cold enough that none of that matters but I fear there will be a nice, you know, half inch layer of ice below the snow that will just stay for a week.
1: Yeah, we'll have to just wait it out and see. I mean, uh we do have it pretty gentle in comparison to many other parts of the country, let alone the world. So, uh yeah, it's all right. I enjoy some snow. I just I grew up in an area where we got a lot more, got a lot more rain uh, at least that would potentially freeze, but people know how to drive in it and we had it regularly, so you stay uh, pretty well versed in, in your driving behaviors, but over here it's uh, it can snowball pretty quickly. And I, I people parking anywhere they just stop. So uh, hopefully we don't end up with that. Uh, you know, I know a couple of people are out riding their motorcycles today. Kudos to you. And uh, let's see uh, let's see who's really uh, you know paying attention. Let, let just just be careful out there. That's all I got to say. About it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Be careful. And, and it, you know, you bring up a good point. Having lived in much snowier states and areas that, uh, you know, if you get more snow, you have better means of, of managing that snow. That's really the problem in the Northwest is once you get far enough west in the Pacific Northwest, you don't really get enough snow days to invest in, in plows and and icer and all the things that you need to really manage that situation. So that's, uh, I agree. Be careful, because Just because the roads look clear, black ice is much more common here because we're not uh, managing the situation as well as many other locations that get snow more often, right? It's easy to afford a number of plows or switch over your, you know, construction trucks to have plows on them and pay for that when you have half a year of snow. When you've got, you know, one snowstorm a year, it's hard to make that a justified purchase. So same reason I don't own a snowmobile.
1: Uh, We live close enough to the mountains. You could own a snowmobile. I think that would be uh, a purchase. No, really.
0: There's other places in the country
1: where it wouldn't make sense, but we could actually do it here. We've got enough snow parks and areas that you can actually go recreate in. You just have to make the time commitment.
0: Yeah, I don't know why, but but I seem to know a lot more people with snowmobiles this year than ever before. And uh, I got to say that the timber sleds, this isn't the topic of the day, but timber sleds look pretty awesome. So I would be very interested in getting feedback from listeners on their thoughts on timber sleds just buy a snowmobile really no nah, i think a timber sled. i've heard timber sleds are more fun but i don't know right i don't have this experience which is why it's not the topic for the day but if you know and have done both let us know your thoughts timber sleds snowmobiles are nothing
1: yeah you'd have to maintain it if you got one and that could be a whole new story
0: well that's the perk of the timber sled right you just take off the the rear mechanism and you're back to a dirt bike until you turn that into a science. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's a quick transition there, buddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've read the title, you've probably determined at some point that that's what we're talking about. And, and that gets into, you asked how I'm doing or what I've been up to, um, and it's been a very busy weekend. I have taken the DSR, a.k.a. the DR-650, um i guess it's not the dsr right it's my dsr machine yes. um however we talked about it <laughs> actually putting that into a verb is uh, is a little different i guess than just calling it a revolution nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> wow we've digressed quickly um yeah i spent a lot of time this weekend working on it i ended up tearing the both sides of the engine covers off uh replacing the clutch Cleaning uh, or, you know, replacing the fuel filter, cleaning up, replacing all the O-rings, really doing a lot of uh, of maintenance and checking, right? A lot of that when you're pulling both cases apart, if you've already gotten that far, it's well worth checking your, you know, your play on the springs and checking all these things that, uh, that we'll get into a little bit deeper here. But pulling the other side out, then it was an adjustment of the balancing chain, which is a, a thing only on the older DRs, so you group of dr writers that uh, don't remember on the pre-96s they're a lot weirder um so yeah you have to do some work on the other side case just to adjust the balancing chain and then uh, while i was in there right you check the valves and you check the the stator and and really you can look at all this stuff um but spent a lot of time basically a full day saturday from bright and early till till well after dark Uh, touching, touching really everything inside of the engine without splitting a case. So,
1: so, I mean, that's all good for preventative maintenance and that's awesome. You got to depart, you're having to do the clutches anyway, but I mean, what, what did you find? I mean, you're doing it and that's good, but did you find anything that was really concerning or that was um, significantly out of adjustment or even out of adjustment at all?
0: So I forewent I think is the right way to turn forgo go into a past tense. I forwent, uh, <laughs> uh cleaning the the full the full carburetor, removing it and disassembling and and having the the possible need to buy an entire rebuild kit for a carb that really didn't look bad. Pulled the bowl off, it looked good, but the reason I really didn't do anything with that is in going through these items, one, the shift in the balance chain adjustment was shocking. Really. Um When I, you know, so it's a weird situation and we'll, I'll just really briefly go over it, but you take the the cover off and then you remove a lock nut, remove the bolt that holds it tight. It's kind of a, the bolt and lock nut are more of a safety precaution so that if the other bolts were to back out, break, whatever, it wouldn't just go nuts in your engine. It would at least hold it there enough that you could stop riding. Um, Obviously you wouldn't want to bring it home, but you could bring the bike to a stop before grenading everything. Mm -hmm. So you undo that, you undo the two bolts that hold the actual adjustment bar, which is more of a a chain guide, right? That's spring loaded. Okay. Um, But you do that all at top dead center. And then you loosen those bolts. And once I did, and really from there, what you're supposed to do is actually torque, reverse torque two of the sprockets on the chain uh, at 17 foot pounds. Not a ton, but you get a, you know, a torque wrench on one side and just hold the other side solid. So you're kind of pulling the chain so the looseness is in one spot, right, where that tension is. And when you do that, it's supposed to kind of adjust up a little bit, and then you tighten it all and move on while you're holding that torque. Uh, Relatively simple. It it definitely on paper seemed difficult. Turns out you can hold one of the sprockets by just throwing a wrench on it and leaning it against the peg while you torque the other. So I I was worried that I would need three hands, right, torque the bolt and hold two sprockets. I was worried about that. Turns out it's super easy. that way? That's weird. I know. But what was shocking to me is before even getting to that step and just loosening the four bolts to be able to do that, right. the amount of, I mean, the amount of kick, really, the chain adjusted a shocking amount to tighten up. Wow. Um, I was a little surprised by that. I didn't expect quite so the... What does that mean? I mean,
1: if it's, it, just to kind of give everybody an idea of what, what this is actually adjusting, I mean, what kind of symptoms can you have? What is that adjustment actually doing?
0: So really, it's just going to make the engine run smoother. It wasn't anything that, that's bad unless it gets too loose and starts eating the side of the case. There's not a ton of clearance between it and the rest of the, the engine there. So it, it's more of a, it's more of what makes a single cylinder 650 a nice smooth ride, right? So, what, so it's not. I mean,
1: what is it doing? Huge If if it's loose, you have some slop, so at some instances is probably fine. And is it retarding itself, or is it like what is actually happening?
0: Yeah, it. I mean, really, based on just the engineering of it, it'll allow a a slight delay in the balancing rotation of the weights in the engine, the balancing weights, and that's really about it. So you're going to get the smallest bit of extra vibration and noise okay right you know it's not going to be uh anything that's going to change the way the engine runs really or do anything like that however like i said if it gets too loose it's you know it becomes a problem and that's one of the renowned things that nobody adjusts this because you have to pull the whole side case to get to it so it's an often neglected maintenance item that's supposed to be every oil change oh wow um looks like that's probably been the case since since the second owner i would say obviously you know the bike's got close to 30,000 miles and it's not graded itself. So obviously somebody did the work or it was done intermittently, but it had clearly been a while. Okay. So uh, definitely worth doing when you do that. Obviously you're already at top dead center. So why not check the valves? Um, so went through and checked the valves intake valve seemed fairly tight. They, you know, I'm, this is, I guess the topic is how much engineering do you need to work on your bike? Right. And some of that comes into, you know, the science of working on a bike and the science of what tools you need, what scientific tools you need, right? You can't just go in there with, you know, your eyes and judge whether the valves are the right distance because at 0.08 millimeters, you're never going to be able to tell. Um, but, you know, with a good set of feeler gauges, which is what you've got when you're checking valves on really whether you've got a, um, whether you've got valves that are screw adjusted or whether you've got valve shims, uh, in bucket, either way, you still need to check it with the feeler gauge. Um, the, the intake valves weren't too bad, but the exhaust valves were very tight, um, to the point that there was zero clearance when, uh, you know, when I went to adjust them. So I was glad to do that. Uh, haven't gotten to the point of firing it up. That's actually today's plan. So need to get, I'm replacing the fuel filter, uh, inline filter and a few other things that needed to be replaced with regards to seals and covers uh, to make sure everything goes up and doesn't have leaks and and runs smoothly. But I'm willing to bet that that's part of the running issue was that the exhaust valves were very very tight.
1: Well, this is interesting because you're wanting to do we're doing an episode on how much science is in a repair, and you haven't even gotten to the point where you can uh, objectively. State that you, you you didn't start it. How can we say you you might have needed to do more science? No, I'm sure everything will end up fine. I'm glad that you were able to go through and tear it apart uh, and look at it. I think it really comes down to. I mean, you you can go off the wall with uh, and go deep into your wallet to to buy some of these tools. To your point, the question is. In what instances is the accuracy or the associated cost of a tool important? So we talk about feeler gauges. I'm sure you can find some for five bucks or less online. Are those going to be adequate, or should one spend thirty dollars on a set? Or what? What kind of mindset do you have going into this? And do you even know the accuracy of the feeler gauges that you have?
0: Um, I. Do you, I actually calibrated them. Fortunately, where we work, there's an opportunity to do that. Um, so I actually did a calibration based on ones that I knew. were So it's, it's a secondhand calibration, right? Ones that I knew were calibrated. Um, not ones that I knew, but a, uh, uh, calipers that I knew were calibrated uh, to show me what was going on. So I know that they are very close. I can't remember the exact number, and, and I knew it at the time. That being said, I've now checked multiple bikes multiple times so I'm sure there's some scratches and indents and and imperfections on them now. Yep, that that would cause a slight discrepancy from where it was. Um, but I went with, you know, I think mine were 20-25 bucks. I didn't go you can go crazy on feeler gauges that are that are, you know, perfectly machined and 70 to, uh, upwards of $70 and above. Um, but I also was a proponent of finding a good set of metric feeler gauges as i've owned british bikes and japanese bikes and and i just think metric is more common on the bikes i've owned um to get a a moderately good set of feeler gauges um i can't say that i you know i didn't go all out for the perfect scientific if i was running a, a lab and needed to you know machine up although you wouldn't use a feeler gauge for this anyway but machine you know the shims or or whatnot that need to be within 0.001 millimeters or anything like that um but well and to that point the things that
1: you're working on i mean accuracy is important but the, the it's not um absolutely critical it's not like you're going to the moon and the accuracy of this has to be perfect such that if you're off by you know two thousandths or something uh, of a millimeter, whatever it may be, that you're going to miss the moon, right? The bike's going to run good. It obviously was running, and I know this is questionable as a statement, but it was running the way that it was. And so the improvements that you're making are only going to help it, especially when you had uh, contact and you couldn't even put a feeler gauge between the exhaust valves and the follower.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's the the, the important point as well, when you're talking about most of these motorcycles, uh, I mean, even the, the Triumph Scrambler wasn't, you know, within even a hundredth between the acceptable range anyway, right? You're, you're talking generally two, three hundredths of a millimeter uh, allowance within the range of what they're looking for, you know, within the spec itself. So, you know, something that's within, like you said, a, a thousandth of a millimeter is more than sufficient. Right. Right.
1: And so that's the point of you don't need to go crazy with any purchases of uh, some of the equipment that you can get out there. Of course, some of those uh, pieces or tools may last a lot longer as well if you end up buying like a a good quality set. But you may not need the accuracy that some of them provide when you get to that point, which of course would uh, add substantial costs regardless. So. But, I mean, so, so it's one thing, okay, you're adjusting something, you need dealer gauges, need certain amount of accuracy. It seems like maybe there's a science associated with that. And there, and there is, but you're only touching the, the surface of that uh, science. I mean, what that gap actually provides and what that does, I mean, all of that was engineered in the beginning. And there is, to some extent, a science in that. That you want your valve to be fully closed. You have certain time to like all of these things, kind of come into into play for that. Uh, but you, we don't really get into that. And in some instances, a lot of the a lot of the things that we do for repairs aren't really scientific. Now there's science backing the decisions that we make and why we do the things that we do, but. Uh, some things are critical and need to be checked, and you just want to have a certain amount of accuracy. So although we're talking about science, I think that accuracy and taking the time to ensure that you're getting something right, to be meticulous, is important for some repairs that one would do, but not all, right?
0: I think that's that's definitely fair. One of the reasons that this is really, I guess, on my mind after spending you know, a weekend, basically all my time, uh, you know, running through all of these, these maintenance repairs. I mean, you, you said it right. A lot of this was, was intermittent maintenance now random, you know, not granted the, uh, you know, the clutch was clearly slipping, and there was things that needed to be done for this to ever run right from from day one, right. But, um, but we really got into it is, you know, we talked, I guess it was episode 45, re- talking about whether you do the work or have the work done, right, when you should right. send something in, and one of the items we talked about is exactly what you're talking about here, that, you know, sometimes it's just cost prohibitive to do it yourself because you need a $300 tool for what would be a $40 job. Uh, and, you know, if a shop's doing it all day, then pay the 40 bucks and you don't need a tool, right? You don't need to spend your time or uh, or money on that tool, uh, if, especially if you're not doing it very often, right? It's something that, that happens once every five years, then it's probably not worth it from a cost prohibitive standpoint. But I will say that a lot of a lot of what I did uh, in going through this, I probably could have done some of this work quicker. But, you know, if you look at your shop manual, if you look at I believe the Haynes manuals have the same thing, whether it's the, the factory manual or a, a different repair manual, you know, the clutch is a great example. When you pull out your clutch pack and you've got your driven plates, your drive plates uh, and springs, those are really your your three replaceable components in a clutch on a motorcycle. You know, there is a factory expectation for where it is new. Then there's a service limit to where if it goes below a certain value, they're considered worn, done and need to be replaced. Uh, and then that's the case for uh, both um, your flatness on the driven plates, your thickness of the cork or whatever material you're using for your drive plates on the clutch, your wear plates. And then there's also a uh, a spec for your initial spring uh, length, unloaded, of course, uh, as well as you know your your service limit of if it's beyond a certain compressed point. Now that it's you know that it's it's not going to give you the uh, the amount of pressure you need on those plates. And so that that's what was interesting doing this is clearly clearly just riding the bike. There was you know clutch slip. So there was a transmission problem such that if you throttled on hard, the clutch was slipping. Um, that you know, undeniable. You see to the pants. You know it, right? You rip it. The engine revs. The bike doesn't go. You can't question that. But when I pulled out the clutch, looked at all the components, and actually did the analysis of of running just a set of calipers on each of the driven plates, or sorry, the drive plates and the uh, the springs, really they weren't beyond the service limit. Uh, they were definitely below the the as new expectation. Sure. They were definitely below the factory spec, but they were technically still within the serviceable range. Um, And so some of that is just an interesting, you know, note that when you do the work yourself, uh, and that's kind of where some of this, the science of doing the work yourself uh, came into play in my brain, that when you do the work yourself, you can check these things. One of my favorite things about working on anything, whether it's a car, bike, whatever, working on it myself is that at the end, I get to see the old parts. I get to compare what I put in, with what I took out and I get to understand whether I should expect something better or whether, hey, maybe that's not the problem, right? Um, One of the things I looked at as well is that the, so this clutch is a little different than other clutches I've seen or worked on where the springs and clutch pack are independent of the actual basket that holds it all. Mm -hmm. Uh, On this DR, you actually remove the nut for the whole basket to get to the springs. Uh, It's got a separate plate that's post-nut, so you have to remove the nut. I mean, you could remove the springs, but that plate wouldn't go anywhere, right? You'd still be fully compressed. Uh, You'd probably shoot yourself in the eye with a bunch of springs and a giant plate if you didn't take the nut off first, because they would be compressed and loaded, and then you pull the nut off and the whole thing would explode. Sounds like fun. Um, yeah, it was just <laughs> different. Usually I've seen on bikes that, especially dirt bikes that have worked on in the past that you just, the springs are independent, right? You've just got four bolts and four springs or sometimes more if it's a more, uh, you know, pressure based, if it requires more pressure on that clutch to work, uh, you know, you pull off the springs, the bolts, the springs, and then the clutch plates come out and you can't remove anything else without removing a center net. But this, the center nut was step one. Um, granted, there's a lock washer on it that holds it. So it can't really go anywhere far, but it was finger loose. Uh, when I got in there, I definitely immediately noticed that I could, when I bent the lock washer back to flat, um, to be able to get to that nut that I just was able to spin it off by hand Mm -hmm. and granted, it doesn't have a huge torque on it because it's only really there to retain, which is why you've got the lock washer as that extra safety, but That was an interesting note that my, you know, that I was able to notice in my head and say, hey, that's not normal. Now there's some looseness in the play of this whole basket by, you know, because a lock washer, maybe one millimeter, maybe two at most. But that's a thing, right? That's something that the science of where this should be, it should be locked in place. And then the lock washer makes sure it can't back out that one or two millimeters to become finger tight. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was just a really interesting note that when I then measured the plates Measured everything with calipers, you know more scientifically than just chucking it in the garbage and moving forward I could note that hey Let's torque this down and new plates that now makes a full picture for me where I can now look at the, the Symptoms of what was happening and understand that hey, maybe there was two problems here But I also know that both of those are now correct because I did the work myself I don't have to worry whether that was done correctly and you know from this point forward if there's still any clutch issues It's going to come from somewhere else, which also caused me to 100% put the clutch lever in spec because I also knew, hey, maybe there was some, you know, weird clutch lever play. Let's redo the whole line. Now, I've already got it disconnected from the engine, right? So now's a good time to readjust both on engine movement options with those lock nuts as well as up on the lever.
1: Yeah. And you're starting with the bike from scratch. You don't know much of the history. You were told something uh, and it all could have been true, but you're only given a small picture of it. You don't know what the bike's been through and what it's had done uh, with it. I mean, there's a lot of instances, if you're doing a backyard overhaul, you've been riding the bike for a long time and you're on the side of the trail or something's going on and you know, you need to replace your clutch. You just replace it. I know that sounds like uh, taboo to some, but you, there's instances where you would just take it apart, you'd make sure it all goes back together, right? You got your manual, but you're not gonna be checking everything. But in your instance, you're trying to diagnose diagnose a lot of different uh, potential issues. You don't know what the root cause of some things are. So by having a good set of calipers, the manual and the manual telling you what each one of these are to be in spec and within their service limit, it's an easy, quick, put it on there, check it, move on, right? go on to the next part, you can just lay it all out and you can take it apart, put it back together and know that, Hey, the clutch is fine. Everything is great. Now I replaced the disc. Everything was within its limit. If I'm having a problem, either I messed up, which is still a possibility or that there's something else going on that seems like the symptom is the clutch, but it's not right. Cause I had it apart and I know it's good. So definitely a good set of calipers. Is on anybody's uh, must-have list if they're going to be doing any uh, servicing of Transmissions motors and several other things on a motorcycle
0: So the yeah, I mean really for the jobs I was doing this weekend um, You know really calipers feeler gauges those especially on motorcycle work where we're doing our own valve adjustments It's not hydraulic valves, right? It's not just a, a throwaway and replace when you have a problem part. It's an adjustable part uh, You know uh, those feeler gauges come in very handy uh, and calipers, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've used calipers in my, in my shop or garage or, you know, really all over the place. Calipers are are super useful and you don't, you don't need, you know, again, an $80 pa- set of calipers. You don't need the super expensive ones. Uh, you just need ones that are pretty darn close. And, it's debatable because
1: it's got to be within, it's got to have accuracy within the range, and and show you significant figures or decimal places such that you can then um, actually check parts and know that it's right. If the st- the standard is showing the service limit is all in thousands or so the third decimal places of each, you know, of whatever measurement you're at. And yours can only do two decimal places. The calipers are useless. So you got to have your mind. You got to have the right mindset when you go in to purchase something. You have to know kind of what you're looking for, and and what the potential uh, measurements that you're going to be taking with those calipers is going to be. Because you could very well end up spending the eighty dollars trying to buy two forty dollars ones just to find out that they were it, they weren't going to work for you.
0: Right. So, good point. What is the uh, the general rule of thumb then? Uh, and and I know the answer, but you're talking about it. What what should you have if you've got? Let's say let, let's just use the DR manual because I had it open just a couple days ago, and I know it by heart now. You know, it's up to the hundreds. Every nothing goes past two decimal places. What what accuracy should my components, whether it be calipers, really any scientific equipment, be to be able to record what I want?
1: It should be three decimal places.
0: Perfect. Yep. Yeah. You just want to go one more than uh you know than than what's expected on okay. on what on you're my measuring.
1: klr it's three decimal places in instances and then so i would need to have four decimal place calipers which then the, the more decimal places or the more uh um finite the measurements can be on your calipers the more expensive they're going to be especially if you're trying to get something with reasonable accuracy and I, the accuracy aspect i think uh would be a tough one to illustrate without a visuals but You want to make sure that your accuracy isn't going to mess up your final measurements. It may be four decimal places, but if the accuracy is such that those four decimal places don't mean anything in the end, then it's useless once again. But in most cases, they're fairly decent and still reasonably priced if you buy something. Just keep an eye. Look around. Look at a few different options. Look at maybe a high dollar option. Right. Before you make a purchase, not that you're going to buy the thousand dollar set, but you can see what do I get with that and what can I compromise and what am I compromising by getting the forty dollar set or the hundred dollar set? I mean, if you're going to use calipers forever, a hundred dollar set or 80 bucks on a caliper isn't that much. You're going to use it and you want it to be able to survive. A twenty dollar set from Harbor Freight may work for a few times and it may work for a long time. But is it dependable? Is it repeatable? Is it is it going to actually withstand you using the tool and not just looking at it and going, I have a set, right?
0: I can tell you from history that I really haven't had too much issue with repeatable, dep- but dependability is a definite concern, especially if you want to use anything electronic on those. They burn through a battery in a week if you leave it in. Right. Um, there's there's clearly issues with the wiring on the harbor. At least uh, maybe they've changed it since because they change their tools about every year, but at least the set I had was. I felt like I'd put a new battery in, and by the next time I used them three days later, the screen was dead again.
1: Right, and um, the, the digital ones can be they, – they're nice. You can see it. You can read it really easily. But, man, the mechanical ones with the dial indicator, yeah. I mean, those ones are just as good, if not better, especially when you're, you're comparing costs and other things and what you're getting at it. You just got to learn how to read it, right? You got to learn how to read it. And once you do that, it doesn't matter what it is. I just want to know that when I look at it and I'm taking a measurement that I know I'm getting a, an accurate
0: measurement. I, I think that's fair. That's the defendability you're talking about is, is and I get that way with a lot of tools that uh, you know mechanical tools su- tend to be significantly more reliable than than those that have you know logic and electronics in them uh, from a long term perspective, right? They don't age out as much sitting in your toolbox if you're a, you know a onesie twosie, a year kind of a, a person and you're not needing the quick look because you're doing it a hundred times a day, then, uh, you know, your, your mechanical tools will often continue to be reliable as well as repeatable for a longer period of time because the electronic factor of that won't wear in the same way. Um, and I also like what you said to, uh, you know, to, to look at the new ones and the ones you're looking at, right? Compare the two. See what you're getting for that extra bang for your buck. Because with anything, whether it's tools, cars, bikes... You know, whatever you're buying, I, I get this way with with everything food included that, you know, there's a certain price point that moving to the next level, you're not getting what you're paying for. It's just because now you've got a gold plated tool, right? Or now you've got a brass tool or whatever it is, right? It, suddenly it becomes that aesthetics and having that cool thing sitting in your toolbox is what you're paying extra for rather than the actual mechanics and use of that tool. Right, right.
1: But a good tool, if you're going to use it a lot is worth the investment especially when you need to have that uh, need to be able to replicate and repeat measurements and know that you're going to get the right uh, accurate uh, response
0: that's what i tell my wife all the time that the tools in the garage are are a great investment so if nothing else use brad as your example when you need to buy new tools
1: you know what i (laughs) I can't say that I have the best of everything. I'm still, I, I go and I'll buy a Harbor Freight occasionally. If I break a Harbor Freight or if it's not getting, if I have any question in its accuracy or whatever the case may be, I know I got to move on to the next one. And then I have the second pair that I have as a backup. Now, I'm not saying that we should all have duplicates of everything and that you should waste money, but there's times to spend you know, spend a good amount of money and times to not. And in some, you know, I, I do think that with calipers, that's one thing that I'd like to invest in getting something a little bit better uh, and feeler gauges. I'm mean, going have a set. Are they, how accurate are they? Ah, they're probably, you know, I could check them if I had a good caliper set, but I don't really. So, I mean, you know, if you, you want to be able to spending the money
0: on a good set of dial calipers, a good C, C clamp style dial caliper, Has been super worth especially when i'm talking about um you know shim and bucket type valve adjustments to be able to know exactly what thickness your previous valves there's a lot of math in that when we're talking science man it's easy to throw a a feeler gauge between a a you know a a screw type uh, you know screw and lock nut type valve adjustment but when you're replacing a worn shim and needing to go get a new shim and make sure that you don't have to do it five times and check, right, rebolt everything up and check that clearance every time. Yeah. There's a lot of science and math in, in doing the math. You know, it's really just addition and subtraction. It's pretty simple, but you got to make sure your initial readings are good. And so I actually, that was the point that I invested in a really good set of mechanical dial calipers.
1: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's important to, that's what I said. It's one of those tools that I think everybody should have. It, no matter what it is that you're measuring, if you're even questioning it, if you're looking at a tape measure and you're like, "Man, I'm not even getting anywhere close," so you know <laughs> what the accuracy—stop an
0: inch per every foot,
1: right? I mean, oh well, you know, getting a good set—it's going to be something that you're going to use. You're going to find uh, opportunities to use it more than you think right now. So. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to have to have these fancy tools for everything. I mean, I over the weekend, I ended up working on uh, lapping the valves in my head. And, and there's I mean, you, you could get into the science of what that takes and you could do all sorts of measurements and, and stuff. Really, what you're looking for is a certain uh, you're, you're looking for a visual and an audible when you're doing that kind of work. And you know that if you, as you're lapping and you're doing it right, you're resetting quarter turn after you sat there and fire started for a little bit, right? Lapping it in there. If after you've done that and you've done that a few times, you're still having pitting on the valve. Okay, it's time to either get a new valve or go and have it ground, right? But that's not something that I'm checking with the caliper gauge. Now, there are things that I'm going to do to your point of working on the uh, valve adjustment. I'm going to have to do that on the KLR when I get to that point. But at this stage, at least what I'm doing right now, I don't need it, and nor do you need something crazy special when you're doing like oil changes, right? We went deep into like major repairs, but just regular maintenance. I mean, you could get really scientific with oil changes if you wanted to, but let me that- stop you. Okay,
0: I am a huge proponent of a good screw. That it doesn't even need to be good. Of a okay torque wrench, uh, even for your You know your drain bolt even for your spark plugs even for these simple common maintenance items i am like crazy about cracking out you know cracking open the box and getting out my torque wrench all the time uh it's a bit obsessive but at the same point i've seen enough used vehicles uh used bikes especially that, you know, an M8 or an M6 bolt has been torqued to, you know, 40 foot pounds of torque when it's supposed to be seven and it's stripped and done and gone. Can't get it out or it's already eaten and just loose in there anyway. Um And so, I you know, that's that's the one caveat I'd say is you don't need to get crazy scientific. You don't need to get stupid about it. You don't need to do all the the insane. right. Don't check your gap between your your O-ring on the oil filter and, and the engine or anything stupid like that. But I think a good torque wrench or an acceptable torque wrench even, because, you know, even the Harbor Freights, I've seen those calibrated. They're not great, but they're not terrible. And they're going to get you a lot closer than just winging it at 20 foot pounds when it should be seven. Right, right.
1: Well, yeah, you know, to that point, I mean, we've got to be very technical. Like we keep on throwing this, uh, uh. Scientific out there, and and I get that people can get into that. If we were really wanting to talk about scientific, I think that we talk about uh, you know re, you know how many measurements did you take? What's the deviation on those measurements? Right? We don't even need to get to that. We, it's important that we do things correctly, and that. If we have a torque measurement, I'm an advocate, and I think all of us should be, that when we're working on something, you should have uh, the service manual. That's number one. I mean, some people may not use them, but uh, I don't care how many times I've done something, or how many times I've worked on a rig that's similar to it, or how many times I've done brake jobs on cars, or worked on a motorcycle. The first thing when I help somebody is, do you have the manual? Right? That's the first question that I ask them, because I'm going to follow that. I'm going to show them that we can find all this information. And that we don't have to just gut, you know, guess on everything and go through it. There's time and a place for just tightening something up to what should be good or what you feel is good. And a lot of that's going to be on the trail and in other instances. But if I've got a torque wrench, and I think to your point, all people that are working in mechanical on things should have a torque wrench. Because they will find that there is a specification for the torque on the oil drain or even that you need to replace that crush washer every single time, right? I mean, who does that? But that is something that one should do if they can ha- if they have access to the resources to be able to do them because what it does is it provides one, peace of mind, that you're not gonna have some crazy leak or a bolt come out and not even know it. I mean, it's pretty critical to have oil. I found that on the KLR, right? <laughs> and that wasn't even as a matter of a oil leak, right? So, I mean, It's good to have the right equipment and a torque wrench. You can go crazy on those if you want to, you know, but you know, for about, you know, 50 bucks or, or maybe a little bit less than that, obviously, if you're getting something from Harbor Freight, it's less than 50 bucks, but 50 bucks, you can get something that's pretty good, right? Once again, see what's out there cost-wise, what it has on it, compare what the, you know, the pros are using to what you're going to use and be able to verify that, okay, these are the compromises I'm making, but I'm going to be good. And with all things, it's a torque window of some sort, right? You're looking for a clamp load, but we provide some sort of a torque. That's what we're going to. And there's some window there. So you can set yourself up where, you know, you put it in the center of that torque range. And if you're off high or low, you're still within the torque range, as long as the accuracy is decent.
0: Yep, that that's exactly kind of my my point with a lower cost, you know, acceptable, especially click type. It's a pretty simple mechanism, uh, in a click click type torque wrench. As long as it's been calibrated at birth, you know, it, it takes a while for that to actually wear and become, um, you know, problematic when you're talking a range of torques. Now, I agree there are certain situations that you need to be pretty exact on that clamp load, and that the torque value that's expected is, uh, you know, it, is fairly critical. Uh, but that's Pretty uncommon, and you're talking, you know, some pretty major service at that point. Just taking the case off of your engine, uh, you know, replacing a, an oil drain bolt, replacing a spark plug. You know, it's a range. As long as you set it for the middle, to your point, it, it's going to be fine. And any right. torque wrench is just going to make sure you don't underdo it or overdo it. That that's really the point. Is I feel like I've I've loosened and played with enough bolts that I have a pretty good feel. But I also have found that if I go based on you know my hand strength for the day on that wrench. There's times that for whatever reason I'm I'm overtorquing everything by a lot, right? And that's and what, so. If you actually
1: look at the research on that, and, and I don't have anything to back this up, other than that uh, <laughs> it's been claimed uh, significant times, and I think we can probably find it online. But but most people will overtorque. They're going to overtorque all fasteners. It's not that they're. Uh, That you know we we are we're not calibrated. My arm isn't calibrated to twenty or thirty or forty foot pounds, right? Especially when you're in different orientations or body orientations where you're having to get in and work on something. But uh, you know, to the torque wrench thing, I mean, another thing just to point this out since we're talking about torque wrenches is make sure that the torque that you're wanting to go to is in the you know two thirds middle window of the torques range, right? So if it says twenty to one hundred and fifty. You trying to torque something to 20 foot pounds, although it's on your gauge, you're going to find that it's quite difficult with the cheaper gauges, especially to actually feel when you hit that 20.
0: You might be okay with the
1: top end, but you should be wanting something that you're not at the very bottom of it and going any lower than that. So if it says 20 and you need to torque to 15 foot pounds, the torque wrench ain't going to cut it, right? You can try to play with it. I've been there and tried to make things work. It doesn't work right either also have one that does inch pounds and be able to convert from foot pounds to inch pounds. It's not hard. It's something that you could easily put into Google, right? But you, or you can get additional torque wrenches, but you know, kind of have an idea of what you're, what you're looking for. You don't need the monster torque wrenches. I guess is my point. That's three foot long because they're probably not going to provide, or like five foot or anything crazy, you know, they're probably not going to provide the torques that you're actually looking for. Right. So kind of, kind of, you know, look for that when you're looking for a torque wrench. Get something that's actually going to be uh, provide the range that you need to be able to torque the majority of the fasteners that you have. And that's tough when you haven't worked on things. But you'll start. You know, look through your manual before you go and buy a torque wrench just to kind of see. Usually, there's torque charts in in all of these manuals uh, uh, for general fasteners, and you can get an idea of what you're going to need for different ranges.
0: Agreed. I you know for for really any motorcycle I've ever worked on and most of the the cars I've worked on, you know, a, a mix of quarter inch and, and three-eighths is all you really need. The half inch really only comes in when you're talking, you know, bigger wheel bearings and things like that in a car. Uh, pretty rarely is that necessary on a motorcycle.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely have a quarter and a three-eighths.
0: Now, is there anything beyond that you've used working on, uh, you know, you're doing a little bit deeper dive onto the KLR. Any other tools that you're using there? Or, uh, you know, you're right, we say scientific, but any more technical, um, you know, uh, tools that require an understanding of use that you've used there?
1: I mean, if you're going to do honing, I didn't end up doing the honing on the KLR. Just, uh, I mean, for me to buy a hone and and go through that, um, as well as check everything when I didn't have a good uh, bore gauge as far as being able to take measurements and other things. Those are tools that, in order for me to get the accuracy that I needed, to your point earlier... I would have had to have spent a substantial amount of money, so I took it to somebody and I spent 20 bucks and they checked everything, honed it, gave it back to me, all cleaned up and pretty and ready to go, right? It only cost me 20 bucks. Now, usually I use uh, times where I go and could go and have something worked on at a shop. I use that cost um, savings to go and buy the tools that I need for it, but at 20 bucks, It would be a lot of times that I would have to go through and uh, have somebody work on it before I got to, you know, $100 caliper set or, you know, $200 or whatever it was going to cost me for everything for them. Uh, Otherwise, I mean, decent wrenches and it's important to have decent tools, Uh, you know, getting something that's really cheap that doesn't fit over nuts and bolts um, and they're a little loose. You're going to find yourself stripping things or they're going to flex. They're just not tough enough for it. So you want to have um, you? You really do that's want to point. spend a little bit of money and buy something uh, decent. Now, I know that uh, probably Harbor Freight uh, wrenches and everything I think are probably going to end up being okay. But uh, you know, a lot of things any less than that, as far as quality is concerned, would be very questionable. Uh, even uh, unless you're on the trail and that's all you have, right? That's what you make work. But you know, buy decent stuff. You don't gotta. You don't gotta buy matco or snap-on or anything like there's good intermediates in between there just you know having decent tools is important because it really does make a world of a difference
0: i agree with that 100 and one thing that uh that i learned the hard way on a couple of bolts on a used bike once is the uh the ball head allen wrenches not for large initial loosening um
1: well, they allen, will strip Allens are just horrible in general. all things should be torques or better. I know that, you know we both worked in the design and test world. Allens are just notorious for stripping, especially on soft metal uh, you know um, well
0: and the Allen's. the ball end wrenches as well are are you know they're, oh, they're you're not getting the full bite on the allen and that that's a real they're easier to move around and quicker to to run with and so for loosening and, and hand tightening and hand loosening to the point where you need to torque it or untorque the initial break you know break it loose they're fine and great and dandy but you know that, that was not, one thing I
1: mean, that was a little bit confusing i just want to make that clear do not use uh at ball ended allens to tighten or loosen a bolt only for uh just threading it in once you have it loose or putting yep. it out once it's already loose
0: yeah. And that's something I've learned the hard way in the past. So that that's, I guess, one, one hot, hot tip here. That's worth sharing that, uh, that, I you know, I more than once have grabbed for those and had to turn that switch on in my brain to, uh, you know, to know, oh, no, 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 let's grab the real ones. <laughs> I mean, what it really good right choice to,
1: is that you're going to have, you know, with all things, and I think we're preaching to the choir in a lot of instances, people know this stuff. Uh, it's kind of interesting to talk about it just because it doesn't get brought up a lot. But You know, it it is a hobby. And if you're going to work on your own equipment, there is an associated cost. You can save significant, substantial thousands of dollars over going to a shop, but it's going to take you your time and it's still going to cost you some money. And so You're going to have to, and I have to do this regularly, still go out and buy new tools and buy certain equipment or upgrade equipment. Or I break something and I know I need to go get a new one that's a little heavier duty because the old one didn't work out for me like I hoped it would once I got to the specific project. So there's still going to be a financial and time investment in repairing your own vehicles, no matter how scientific or how deep you go into it.
0: Now, all of that being said, there's something incredibly gratifying about having an all day job that you have every tool for as well. Um, you know, when you're doing some of the things, granted, nothing required too much from a crazy tool uh, for what I did. But to be able to basically disassemble both sides of the engine, make all the adjustments and all this stuff that I needed to do, you know, having all of that is, is very gratifying to know that, hey, I can do all this. I have the capability. I know it's done right. And I have all the tools to do it um and so there, there's something good about that i will also you talk about a time uh time commitment or a time cost associated i will also say that if you're just getting into doing your own maintenance just getting into uh, a job you've never done before that's kind of one of the reasons you know this is a bike i wasn't familiar with uh that it took me so long to do the dr is is go slow follow the process step by step use the manual uh and take your time make sure you're not trying to do a You know, a job that shows four hours in the books in four hours at home the first time you've ever done it because you're going to make a mistake if you do that. If you slow down and take it easy and follow the rules, uh, you know, you're you're likely to not really have unforeseen issues if you take it easy. When you're going too quick and you're just ripping bolts out, that's when you break bolts. That's when you cross thread. That's when you cause problems.
1: Yeah, too quick or too cheap will have the same exact symptoms. You go to the screwdrivers, even like everything is critical that the cheap stuff really is cheap and it'll cost you in the long run. It'll strip bolts of fasteners and and screw heads and whatever it may be that uh, you don't. That's just that ends up leading to even more time that you have to spend on it. So buy decent equipment, buy some stuff that, you know, people have been having. uh, I've had, like I said, for the most part. Pretty good luck with especially non-moving parts from Harbor Freight. Uh, I do think that the quality has come up in the last 20 years, and I'm not advocating or trying to advertise for them, but I'm just trying to give references, uh, as well as, you know, Evercraft. I have some Evercraft tools, Craftsman tools, and these are all ones that are, you know, kind of can get a little bit expensive, but they're not – I'm not ta- – I don't have – Those are mid-range. Yeah, Craftsman. that's of mid-range. Kind of looking around there. If you're right in that area – then you're going to do pretty good i would definitely avoid non-name brand non-familiar brands that you can buy on amazon they could be okay but a lot of them are just going to end up being really cheap tools that they have on there at cheap prices because they're cheap
0: i agree and so this kind of gets into something we're starting we've talked about all these old teasers for things we're going to do this year uh, as the summer comes in we're going to start having intermittent uh you know shop time i know that only helps those here in the northwest um, but if you're interested in that, let us know, uh, hit us up on Facebook, start following us on Facebook, uh, as we're going to start having more of a lesson based, uh, you know, shop days throughout the summer, where we're going to do a specific task that maybe is less common, right? Probably an oil change will, will fit into something or a number of easy maintenance will all be one day. But things like a clutch, right? Things that you may be a little more weary of diving into. You know, we can follow someone, uh, you know, whether it's Brad or I or someone else who's got a bike that needs it uh, doing that that maintenance item to learn how to do it and then have people here to help, uh, you know, help you go about it on your own bike. Uh, if you bring all your tools and parts and ready to go uh, with a few things to, to share from our, our community, uh, our community you know shop time here that we'll have. So keep an eye on that Slacker Moto on Facebook, uh, Instagram will be shared as well. Of course, you can always check uh, Slacker Moto. Uh, for any updates there on the website. And uh, we do appreciate you following along and, and sticking with us. I believe by the end of this month, uh, unless something catastrophic happens, we're going to break 10,000 downloads. So we Woo-hoo! are flying forward and having a great time. So thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, woot woot, as Brad says, and have a have an awesome week. Stay warm, guys. Till next time, ride on. <laughs>